Welcome to the Africa Tech Summit podcast, sharing insights from across the African tech scene. Today's episode is part of our Africa Climate Tech Summit series, which is kindly supported by Mercy Core Ventures and Pure Carbon in partnership with the 6th D. Stay tuned for great insights and a discount code to join us at the Africa Climate Tech Summit in Nairobi. My name is Boko Nyundo, founder of the 6th D. In today's episode, with Martin Freumuller, founder and CEO of Octavia Carbon. We're exploring the world of direct air carbon capture. Martin, welcome. Great to have you uh, on you. this uh, podcast. I'd like you to quickly uh, introduce yourself to our audience by letting us know who you are, who you work for, and, and a little bit about the, the, the organisation. Um, hi, folks. I am Martin, Martin, and I am the founder and CEO of Octavia Carbon, um, and Octavia Carbon designs, builds, and deploys machines um, that filter CO2 from the atmosphere using direct air capture technology or DAC technology um, to reverse climate change and to end the fossil fuel age. That's what we do. Fantastic. Thank you. My next question is, is really for uh, uh, a non-expert like myself. What exactly is direct carbon capture? How does it work? Yes, no, it's a great question. So essentially it describes a process that inherently like uses engineered technology to filter CO2 from air. And then essentially once you have that filtered and saturated, you would uh, release that CO2 into a closed space. And then generally speaking, you would take that CO2 and then store it below ground to, you know, essentially mineralize the CO2 below ground, turn it into rock. So you're taking CO2 from the atmosphere and putting it back into geological layers, essentially back to where that carbon came from. Um, and the purpose of that is to carbon removal, carbon dioxide removal. The idea behind it is that climate science is very clear that we needed at very large scale, so five to 10 billion tons of CO2 removed from the atmosphere each year by 2050. So for Cynthia, that's like twice the size and weight terms of the petroleum industry. It's a lot of stuff that we have to move. And yeah, so broadly speaking, um, the air capture describes, you know, building machines that do this. Now, how you build those machines varies quite a bit. The one thing that's really important to say is that it is taking CO2 from atmospheric air, um, which is the direct air part. There's also point source carbon capture, sometimes somewhat unhelpfully just called carbon capture or carbon capture and storage. Um, and that one would essentially retrofit existing emission sources, um, like for example, cement plants. Uh, it is also a crucial climate technology, but it is not what we do. We take CO2 directly from the atmosphere, you know, after long time after it has been emitted, essentially. Um, and that by taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere, still in the middle of ground, we can essentially um, both balance our global carbon budget and in a longer time frame, reverse climate change. And then one thing I'll touch on very briefly is, crucially, it might be slightly longer term, but the other thing that the air capture enables us to do is to 
take carbon from the air instead of from the ground, essentially. So climate science, much as it tells us that we need to remove a lot of CO2 from the atmosphere, also tells us that we have to stop putting it there in the first place. Um, and that's easy enough with many things, but um, if you look at your phone, for example, and the sort of many different types of plastics involved there, all of those essentially come from fossil fuels, like those are fossil fuel derivatives. They're essentially dinosaur juice. Um, and the way that you get rid of it is by taking the carbon that we need from air, um, snapping a green hydrogen atom onto it, and then you can essentially recreate the global world economy from scratch. And that is the longer term plan we do. Thank you. That's, uh, that's really helpful. Um, and you're, you're based in Kenya. What, what were the drivers for setting up the business uh, from there? So the important context is that I literally moved my life to Kenya because it is the best place in the world to build direct air capture um, technology. And I have not regretted it a day since, but let me tell you first of, of why um, that is the case. So essentially the way that direct air capture works mostly is you essentially you know, have that filter, you saturate your CO2, then you have to regenerate that filter. Um, that will always need a lot of renewable energy that is just rooted in thermodynamics, basically. Um, and the point is that um, that energy, for one, needs to be renewable, otherwise you're just putting more CO2 in the atmosphere for every ton that you capture. But then the other really important piece is that that energy does not need to be electricity. It can just be heat. So the way that we regenerate our filter is we regenerate our CO2, we, we heat our CO2 filter to something like 80 degrees Celsius, um, which then releases the CO2. And the heat that we get for that is essentially heat from a waste geothermal sources. So it's a waste product from the geothermal power production, and that can cover up to 90% of the energy requirements that our process has, which means that geothermally active countries like Kenya are arguably the best places in the world to build um, direct air capture because much as you need a lot of renewable energy, um, there is some places in the world that are abundant in that energy and others that are not. And geothermal areas crucially have renewable energy literally coming from the ground. And that is why Kenya for one is a really good place uh, I'll touch on two other quick factors there, which is that um, Kenya um, has ideal geology to store that carbon once it's been captured. So Kenya is one of few places that have the right geology so to actually store the CO2 below surface, but not just store it, but actually turn it into rock. Um, so essentially what you're doing is you're taking that CO2, you mix it with geothermal brine to create carbonic acid, you pump that below carbonic acid, by the way, it's the same thing as fizzy water, like it's the very same compound. Um, you pump that below ground, um, you um, then sort of put it 800 meters below the ground, where it then reacts with calcium and magnesium ions in basaltic rock layers. Uh, to essentially form cultural carbonate or limestone. If you think of, I don't know, the white cliffs of Thor, for example, that's exactly that, basically. So it's a natural process that we're exerting by quite a lot, um, and therefore, like, can leverage to store all of humanity's carbon emissions that way. Um, two more quick factors, and I think one is, like, really deep to mind, which is that, so direct air capture has been deployed in one commercial installation globally, um, that is in Iceland, and Iceland has some geothermal, act geothermal activity, it has some of the right geology too, um, 
the thing that it does not have that Kenya does in abundance is talent. Well, I will say that Kenya, like Icelandic people are surely talented enough, uh, but there isn't that many of them, especially when we want to build an absolutely enormous industry. And Kenya really has um, that well-educated talent um, that you can give a decent lifestyle to at a fraction of the cost of doing so in the global north. Um, and we've seen, you know, as humanity, we know how to make um, clean technology cheap. We've done it with solar, we've done it with batteries, we've done it with wind and electric cars and so on. And Global South talent and ingenuity was a crucial ingredient to all of those. And we're essentially doing the same thing for direct air capture, um, but in Kenya. That is the idea. And that, by the way, also creates a lot of climate justice and co-benefits. It is literally um, Kenya and the whole of Africa more broadly is one of the hardest hit regions on Earth by climate change. And by deploying here, we can essentially like leverage this industry to create both sustainable growth, but also crucial climate justice. And always good as a Kenyan uh, myself uh, to hear uh, people talking favourably about uh, uh, Kenyan talent, um, albeit with me based in London. But uh, I, I, I guess uh, well, one one question that that um, throws up for me is um, Kenya's very proud of its uh, the direction of travel it's taken in terms of renewables, uh, and it, it, in itself claiming to to. to to, to power its needs through 100% renewable energy. Now, are there, is you, your decision to operate from Kenya also met with, or not so much met with, uh, being driven also in part by a sort of pro-innovation um, regulatory infrastructure and reg, 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 uh, sort of policy-led um, framework? Or uh, were you primarily driven by what you've mentioned just now around talent and obviously the geolo- geological um, opportunities of the, of the country? Um, it wasn't necessarily policy-driven, no. If anything, um, policy around direct air capture, it is a very nascent industry. There's less than a 1,000 people working at direct air capture companies globally. Um, and the policy to spur it on exists in the global north. The... The U.S. will literally pay you to build a deck, a capture installation. They will pay you to run it, and they, they will buy the resulting carbon credits from you. Um, and so, yeah, it's hard to compete with the policies of other countries in the U.S. and so on. Um, but the one way in which we can is really just to build where it makes sense in the long term to do so. And for that, I mean, we weren't so much driven by policy, but we were just a hard look at the fundamentals, basically. And that, in many ways, is the energy and the geology and the, the talent, the demographics, too. Um, and, you know, East Africa, well, like what I'm saying about Kenya to East Africa more broadly, in many ways, we are like an East African company, potentially more so than a just purely Kenyan one. Um, the big differentiator is that Kenya has a very substantial existing geothermal industry, uh, which is not the case elsewhere in East Africa, basically. And because we tie into geothermal in a bunch of ways, using their waste heat, um, using some of the waste capacity, using some of the waste infrastructure, um, Kenya was the natural place we had started. And the other thing I will say, you know, uh, you know I literally like you know, looked at this on paper before I decided to move here. Uh, Kenya is a very innovation-friendly place, right? Like Kenya is a good place to build a business, right? Like uh, you might say that, you know, maybe in the long run, you know, we really manufacture at space at, at, at scale and build out the infrastructure around direct air capture. Maybe a country like Ethiopia would have looked up for you. That's fair enough. But if you are building a startup, then... Like, I think there's 
I mean, my personal take on this, and this is uh, maybe controversial, is that there's no other place in Africa like Nairobi um, to build a startup. Um, the access to investment, the access to talent, uh, the access to ideas um, just is, is really amazing. I mean, to give you just a pure illustration of that, like um, I got started here at, just, at the beginning of last year. One problem that you always have with direct air capture is that you only capture CO2. We do not store CO2. Um, we need a storage partner to take that CO2 from us and store it below ground. But in Kenya, like, you know, we were just doing a program um, with somebody else, like, around, like, creating carbon removal technologies that someone happened to be based in Nairobi, that someone then happened to build a storage company for that C2 that we're now producing. Uh, and we we're really close partners with them. And, you know, they've done an amazing job ever since as well. But the fact that DAC is a global hub for talent and it's a very livable place and that, like, you know, lots of people uh, want to be here and are here, it's just, like, a really key differentiator, you know, things like security, ease of doing business. The Kenyan government has done a lot right in creating the right ecosystem to to incentivize that innovation. And just to be clear, what we're doing is very innovative. There's literally no other direct air capture company anywhere in the global south. We're literally the first one anywhere, like in, including you know, China, India, Latin America. Kenya is the leader in this technology anywhere in the global south today. So who, who would Octavia Carbon consider to be its customers uh, now or in the near future? Great question. We have sold $500,000 worth of carbon credits, which is our primary product for the time being. Um, the typical customers for that are um, corporations in the global north, um, mostly in finance and in tech, generally speaking, sectors that don't have a huge amount of emissions and have a good amount of profits um, so they can invest and are expected to um, certainly they, they can afford to and are expected to invest heavily in their climate commitments um, by all the stakeholders, the customers, the employees, the investors and so on. Um, and so like for example, like one of our customers is the Swedish um, bank Klarna. Um, it's like a, a neobank, uh, like a fintech company. Um, and they are essentially buying $100,000 worth of carbon credits from us. They have prepaid for those. And the idea is that that will help us to actually build the machines that will form our pilot project and then remove CO2 from the atmosphere that way. So that is the general profile of customers. Um, <coughs> essentially, <coughs> so, <coughs> a lot of these guys have been buying carbon credits for a long time, basically. But you might have heard that earlier this year there were a bunch of really major scandals um, that if you look at the largest uh, carbon credit issuing projects today, you see that something like 94% of those credits are essentially fake. Um, in some cases, even like credits that were sold cause a negative impact on the climate. Um, and you can imagine if you're somebody who buys these credits, if you say a um, like a Louis Vuitton, for example, or a Gucci who was like caught out buying some of these low quality credits, um, then that is bad for you. It's bad both for, you know, for like marketing purposes because then you speak of people like to flag these, but you could literally get sued for false advertising and that increasingly happens because frankly nobody's under the illusion that a bulk of these credits actually have a climate impact. Um, and so I think increasingly core companies are a lot more sort of considered around what they actually buy. And direct air capture just has a lot to offer there because 
we literally measure to the gram actual CO2 molecules that we are capturing from the air. And then also another crucial factor, we are actually storing it geologically um, so that carbon removed stays removed for thousands of years, which is really important because our emissions also stay in the atmosphere for thousands of years. And frankly, most nature-based credits, if they even remove carbon from the atmosphere in the first place, only guarantee that that carbon will be locked up for about 20 years. And the thing is, 20 years from now is really when you want to be carbon neutral and you don't want to have to deal with the emissions from 20 years ago. Um, so like those quality criteria really mean that people are very interested in what DAC has to offer. It is very nascent today. It's sort of where solar was 20 years ago. So um, the pool of folks that invest in it are somewhat limited. The cost can be as high as $500 per ton of CO2 compared to you know, often just $5 per ton of CO2 Per, for conventional credits, but that is really coupled with the promise that, that these credits can come down in cost really quickly. Um, so for us, the target is to be below $100, ideally within five years and definitely before the end of the decade, at which point the ACAP just becomes a very attractive tool for companies and government, governments and individuals to use to get to a real net zero um, that matches the very real emissions that we pump into the atmosphere with equally real, tangible, um, you know, carbon like C2 molecules removed from the atmosphere. Join us at the Africa Climate Tech and Investment Summit in February, part of Africa Tech Summit Nairobi, where African tech connects. Please visit africatechsummit.com forward slash Nairobi for more details and use discount code GREEN, that's G-R-E-E-N, and receive a discount off delegate passes. I'm going to probe a little bit deeper on competition or alternative solutions to carbon capture and, and your perspective on, if you like, what, what you're seeing others doing through the, those alternative solutions to mitigate against um, climate change and whether you're learning anything from them or re- what they're doing is reinforcing that what you're doing is the correct course of action in as much as we appreciate that the solutions to um, uh, climate change are going to be manifold uh, and involve lots of different types of players. Anything you're seeing that's captured your imagination and curiosity and you can talk favourably about or uh, certain arenas that perhaps aren't going to fulfil what they're promising, whereas you feel you can because you've got this sort of much more measurable approach to delivering for your customers. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the, the climate science is pretty clear. It's like we need several approaches. We need nature-based approaches as well as engineered approaches. Um, and, you know, we are doing our part in building out the engineered one. Um, there's some sort of really like fundamental scientific shortcomings that certain methods have around especially arable land use and also like the permanence in which you lock up the CO2, which is the things I was touching on before. Um, and so, you know, my background, you know, is at Dalberg. I used to do um, consulting in international development space. And the point is that at that um, level, I was just, you know, like a carbon guy, basically. Like I, I, I consulted um, projects around the world around how to integrate thinking on carbon markets into what we do. So I have some deep, um, you know, 
exposure there and they have a lot of respect for a lot of the great projects that are out there though I think quite often there's like some really fundamentally hard things that, that these projects need to tackle questions around additionality questions around like permanence and so on so um, obviously for, for not entirely surprising reason I'm quite convinced about what we're doing in the broader climate tech space very quickly I would say um, one industry that is very close to our hearts is hydrogen um, for the simple reason that you can like add a hydrogen atom to a carbon atom that you take from air and essentially create a hydrocarbon, which is literally like the thing that our world is made of. And you can find you know many things that hydrocarbons we can be eradicated from, like you know uh, petrol cars, for example, can be replaced by electric cars. But it's a lot harder to replace a kerosene jet jet flying from Nairobi to New York with one powered by battery that will just Likely never happen. Um, and the point is that we can create these carbon-based energy carriers renewably using um, direct air capture to get the carbon from air and then um, green hydrogen production to get hydrogen from clean sources. And that can take us a very long way. So like that is an industry that we take our inspiration from. Some interesting activity there really think very, very deeply about, okay, throughout the life cycle of this thing from like the machine to buy through the power plant that supplies your uh, your electricity and so on like what is all the emissions and if you add, add them up basically because the point is you cannot do what we are doing especially in carbon removal um, without accounting for all those emissions and the same thing is true for green hydrogen um, and you really have to think about it as what actually does carbon neutral, low carbon, etc. actually mean. And you have to do the maths behind that to capture all the emissions in your life cycle um, of, of production, basically. And so, yeah, I think hydrogen is, is really interesting. There's interesting work there being done in Kenya where Fortescue and others. I think the Kenyan government is rightly realizing that these sort of green molecules have a lot uh, of a role to play. They're really key technologies into industrializing Kenya in a very clean and sustainable way. Um, and so I think that's finding a lot of resonance. It's a very big inspiration for us um, and definitely something that we look to piggyback on in the future as well. Interesting. Um, question on, uh, around your uh, investments to date. What Again, what, what, what you're able to publicly divulge, um, whether you can tell us uh, where that investment's come from, um, as well as give us a little bit of colour as to where likely sources of uh, future and further investment um, uh, may, may, may surface from. Yeah. And frankly, this is hard, right? Like the thing that we're building is really deep tech, basically, right? Um, mm. it, it takes a long time to really like, like get revenue and to like, you have to get the tech right. Like, you know, we're not just importing things and then just like, you know, selling them to the local market. Point is, we are building these things from scratch, from very low technological readiness levels. Um, and that takes money. It's expensive to build really novel hardware. Um, and so like our investors to date, um, like few of them are actually based on the African continent because I don't think we're doing nearly enough yet to, you know, frankly trust Africans to create the future, right? Like really like build deep tech here, right? We look at the, future of the climate transition and so on and really like look to actually build that future here. Um, but to sort of answer your question more directly, so um, we have had 
around $750,000 in investments. Um, the bulk of that, as I said, comes from the U.S. There's both um, a so three U.S. angels that put in sort of uh, $200,000 between them. Um, those were sort of our first tickets. Um, then we also had the cat. Then we had sort of uh, continue with the U.S.-based ones. Then we had the Colab Ventures come in with their Shade Future Fund to put $100,000 into Octavia. And then um, very recently, which is just closing with a prominent Silicon Valley investor called Peter Vilan and his um, accelerator called UWeb Inc. or UWeb Incubator. They are building a direct air capture program that specifically focuses on um, building out their air capture around the world, basically. Well, um, or whatever, like wherever it is, basically, but the, the, the most normal and best approaches. And so that's a very great um, reaffirmation for us for what we're doing to actually get that that investment that's around $250,000. Um, so add those up, um, it's around $550,000 that we've had from the US. Um, and then we've also had $200,000 from the local Catalyst Fund. Um, that's $100,000 in venture building services and $100,000 in cash um, from uh, yeah, the, the, the Catalyst Fund. And we were part of the Inner World Climate Cohort, Climate Tech Cohort. Um, and yeah, I mean, and there's like a few sort of like uh, much smaller angel investors too that are based out of Paris, like that's sort of $40,000 straight between them. Um, but the next step for us is really like, yeah, to look to scale this a lot locally. And that is equally hard, right? Like being a seed, sta- seed stage African climate, <laughs> seed, sta- seed stage African deep climate tech company is essentially a category that does not exist. Um, so it is hard for us. I mean, we, we are proud to be trailblazers in many ways. And, um, we have the good fortune of like, you know, having really like a lot of supportive customers, um, and some, you know, investors abroad that are like are backing us in doing this. Um, but still finding seed investment is hard. We are currently talking to, um, two likely lead investors, um, both of which focus much more on infrastructure investment, actually less on tech investment. And they're just keen to bet strategically on their gate captures, seeing its huge potential. Um, but it's hard. It is a big competitive disadvantage um, when you look at access to capital to build deep tech in Kenya. Frankly, like our peers are being showered by grant money and uh, even like various sort of like um, Accelerator funds that you have to be geographically, um, like, in the, that you have to be in the right geography for. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot more that can be done around catalyzing deep tech and really building the future in Kenya and then more broadly in, in Africa too. Interesting. And actually, that leads, leads me on to my next and, um, I think penultimate question. Um, it, is key success factors. Uh, uh, it, it feels to me, and obviously as a marketeer by background, that marketing can p- play an important role in in illustrating what you do and helping the market un- understand whether that's the investor side of the ecosystem or customer side of the ecosystem or even just attracting talent, um, re- really getting that narrative um, into the market in a way that people – um, understand, appreciate, and see the potential from. But um, 
what 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 do you see as being if you like uh, Octavia Carbon and actually more widely the the industry in which you're operating what do you see as a, the the key drivers to achieve success are there any other aspects of uh, what you're doing, which you see as mission critical to successfully delivering for your investors, for your customers? Yeah, totally. Um, it is simply building a globally competitive product. Um, ultimately, that is the only with all the whining that we like to do about access to capital in the region. And, and uh, a very much an example of that, as I've just demonstrated. Um, frankly, we're not building nearly enough thing technology yet that is globally competitive. Um, and so that is the mindset that we have to adopt. We have to compete globally, not just in the you know comparatively small markets that we call home, um, or you know in some maybe adjacent African markets. Um, the goal very much is, and this is like you know. Any country that could which did this basically, right? You have to sell something globally. You have to be globally competitive. Um, and so for us, like, you know, how do we, well, like, what differentiates us? How do we win? I mean, we win on all the criteria that matter to our customers. Crucially, price. We are lower priced than our competitors. And a service that, like a carbon credit where, um, you know, ultimately it really depends on who can produce their air capture at the lowest credit. What matters is that CO2 is very, very tangibly removed from the atmosphere and that you can essentially do anywhere. And so price matters. Um, quality matters. Like, you know, we are the first direct air capture company that will get a very crucial certification in our industry via ICRA, the, the International Carbon Removal and Offsetting Alliance. Um, um, so price, it's quality, um, it's when can you actually deliver those credits, it's a bit more technical, but the point is that their, their data capture is so nascent today that very few projects have actually been built. Literally only one commercial product project exists in the world today, and we will have the second one in Kenya um, by mid-next year, and hopefully by the end of next year, we actually hope to have the largest data capture project on Earth to... Um, and that just means that we can deliver these credits sooner than that our other competitors would, especially on selling these pre-purchases that come with pre-payments as well. Um, and then finally, um, co-benefits. You know, frankly, like for a product like a carbon credit, people people rightly um, care about the fact that um, their spending can create climate justice in parts of the world, like, you know, in the Rift Valley where we deploy our machines, the local communities are Maasai and they have literally not bought a litre of petrol in their lives for the most part. Um, the fact that those guys are suffering worst from the effects of climate change to the extent that literally their way of life is, like, you know, um, threatened um, to, like, there's a threat of extinction for that lifestyle. Like there's very little space these days to do pastoralism in Kenya because it's just too dry, and that's because of climate change, right? And so I think our customers are rightly thinking that uh, they can address that. But you know, crucially, like those co-benefits do not come at the expense of price, of quality, or of in our case delivery timelines. But that is really something that we should write on our flags. Really, like if we want to grow, if we want to get the right capital, we can only do that by. Um, building things better than anyone else. And that is very much the claim that we have on us. We are not just the global South's first, that company, we're just not just Africa's first, that company, we're not just Africa's best company. We want to be the world's best tech company, full stop. That's our ambition. Yeah. 
and and I'd, I'd imagine um, in order to do so, strategic partnerships are going to be central to 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 that growth. And by the strategic partnerships, I mean you, you, you've spoken about one or two um, customer relationships that you've got, um, but forming those takes time, takes energy, takes a real effort to build mutuality uh, in terms of goals and alignment. Uh, but once built, they can actually be a real stimulant to uh, not ju- just growth within that relationship, but actually others seeing the value of those sorts of partnerships and, 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 and coming on board to do, to, to do exactly the same as that prior corporate did. Yeah, no, it's true. Those partnerships matter. What I would say is quite often the way the value chain here works is that there's intermediaries um, between us and the final customer retiring our credits um, and it's retirement business. People buy credits in the end. Um, they're, like, and those intermediaries do have a really important role to play, especially for direct data capture because the market for what we do, and especially like the higher price credits that we produce, is still relatively narrow. So there is, as you say, a lot of customer education that needs to happen, but those generally happen with via sort of sustainability consultancies um, that help companies you know, measure their carbon footprint, um, help, com- help them with strategies to reduce their carbon footprint, and then ultimately find like products for them to like really like uh, offset any remaining emissions, um, and who then really like look to. And you find the best quality, and they, those guys are crucially aware of the role that carbon removal technologies will have to play here. Um, and so, yeah, that is definitely um, a bunch of strategic partnerships that we have that have been really valuable for us. I mean, we are also selling directly to some end customers, and you're right that the sales cycles here along the, the average ticket size for us is more than $100,000, so you can imagine that isn't necessarily signed over breakfast. It takes some time, it takes some trust to build. My last question is around threats and whether there's any one or two threats to either your business model or to the potential for direct air carbon capture really flourishing and growing as a solution to um, the, the the net zero transition uh, expectations of, of the world. Uh, what what are the sort of threats and or barriers to that that growth really uh, taking hold and turning a nascent industry into yeah. into a mature one? So, um, I mean, I guess the major threat that keeps us up at night is competition. You know, that's the way it ought to be. Um, so we are thinking about, uh, you know, competitors in, you know, China, Indonesia, the Philippines, potentially other geothermal areas like Ethiopia and so on, um, coming on the scene and trying to copy what we do because frankly it's working. Um, you know, we have the right tech, you know, like, and frankly building this stuff is pretty hard. So we do have a pretty strong technological moat around what we do that, that makes us feel fairly secure there. Um, but you know, like, uh, you only stay ahead of the competition if, if, um, even the thought of it, uh, gives you sleepless nights. And I mean, beyond that, I mean, there's a few things like, you know, uh, access to capital, for example, which is uh, a tricky one. You know, like climate tech tends to have this value of death, basically, where you can build a pilot that, that's, that part is easy enough, basically. Um, but there is a question around, you know, can you then build a scale-up plant? Can you mobilize the debt? Can you, like, you know, that, that might be concessional debt? Or can you, frankly, just mobilize the capital to build that? Um 
And yeah, I mean, that is something that does keep me up a lot. <laughs> um, we're definitely building a lot of partnerships and we're getting a lot of support from um, customers, investors, other folks who might have a role here, development finance and so on. So, you know, my job as CEO is to be an, uh, like a hopeless optimist. Um, not, not quite hopeless, but like a, a, a optimistic realist at the very least. Um, and so, yeah, no, there's no challenges that I think we cannot overcome. There's, there's always going to be threats, regulatory, uh, regulatory risk, technology risk, market risk, and so on. Like, that's part and parcel of doing something that's truly new and innovative, right? The exciting bit is the, the threat and the, the risk and the, uh, the chance that it might all just fall apart and not work, but equally the chance that it might blow up and become huge. And in our case, really the thing that can make East Africa a high-income country region, which is very much the ambition that we have for direct air capture in Kenya and beyond that in East Africa. Well, thank you very much, Martin. Um, it was fantastic listening to you and, and learning a little bit more about what David Carbon does and also the prospects you see for, for, for the industry, not just locally in, in Kenya, East Africa, but more, more, more broadly globally. Martin, if, if you could, as we end this podcast, um, share with us, uh, a little bit about what's coming down the, Octavia Carbon, any initiatives and projects that you're currently focused on that uh, we'll see surfacing over the next few months or or a year or so? Yes, exactly. So um, one really exciting thing that we're working towards is the world's second largest DAC and storage plant that we are now building in the East African Rift Valley, well, the Kenyan Rift Valley, um, just outside Navasha. And yeah, so that's is a 1,020-year uh, plant. It's still small. It's called Project Hummingbird, um, very much inspired by you know, this more... Um, I can just cut that. Uh, it's called Project Hummingbird. And the idea is that, yeah, I mean, um, we're already having a lot of really exciting global partners for this, um, but always on the lookout for more partners, especially focused on the customer side, which is sort of think about buying carbon credits if you want to dabble a bit into carbon mobile technologies, we'd love to hear from you. And equally, you know, finance, it's expensive to build something really globally new and it's especially expensive to build in Africa uh, and in Kenya for that matter. And we are very proud to do so. Um, and we are very keen to hear from partners that are, but I want to sort of go on this, this crazy ride with us as we build Kenya into the global leader for direct air capture and storage, which by the way, we want to do from you know, the end of 2024 already. Um, we want to be the world's largest direct air capture company. And soon after that, really just to build Kenya into the, into the undisputed leader at this tech, at this globally needed and novel tech. And any partners for that is, are very much appreciated. It is a very exciting thing, but also like a very expensive thing to build. It needs a good amount of debt, project finance, you know, uh, also like on the equity side and so on. Um, so keen to hear from anyone who's, uh, like, you know, looking for some like interesting climate technology to get involved with. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. Sounds exciting. And, uh, yeah, uh, any organizations and brands that have a particular ambition around positioning for sustainability, but also for pro innovation, tight returns from a reputational point of view, but also diversity. I mean, building out in Kenya and 
you know, securing those carbon credits from a business like yours that's uh, hiring talent on the ground in places like uh, Kenya and more broadly East Africa is uh, surely a reputational plus for any organisations that express interest. So, yeah, let's see what surfaces over the course of the next few months. Exciting times. Join us at the Africa Climate Tech and Investment Summit in February, part of Africa Tech Summit Nairobi, where African tech connects. Please visit africatechsummit.com forward slash Nairobi for more details and use discount code GREEN, that's G-R-E-E-N, and receive a discount off delegate passes. To hear our latest episodes, please subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit africatechsummit.com for our upcoming events and news.